pray together. Lord, we bow before you as our God, as our King, the one to whom honor and praise is due. And we thank you that we come before you because of Jesus as our Father who loves his children and who makes promises to us like strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Lord, I just pray that we would be granted faith to cling to that no matter how much strength a day needs or how uncertain the future seems that we would experience your strength and have a solid hope in you come what may. And only you can do that in us and for us. Thank you that you are with us, that you are for us, and therefore nothing and no one can ultimately be against us or harm us. We are yours, and we are so thankful to rest in your care this morning. I pray for anyone who is here today that doesn't know you as their God, doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that even today they would see how desperately they need Jesus. We all need him desperately. And that by your sheer grace that you would open blind eyes to see him as he is. So Lord, uh, be working among us now as we open your word Speak to us peace. Um, transform us by the renewing of our minds. Help us to think right thoughts about you and not wrong thoughts or unworthy thoughts, but thoughts that are in accord with what you have said about yourself. So be with us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what we think and believe about God really comes into focus during times of suffering. On an average day, we believe God loves us. But when pain comes into our lives, we might have some doubts about his love. On a good day, we know God is good, but on a really bad day, we might have questions about his goodness. We affirm that God is all wise, but in a distressing trial, we might think or say, I sure hope God knows what he's doing in all this. Our texts for today deal with questions about God's justice. Does God always treat people in the right way? Or does he sometimes wrong them? Are God's dealings with us always fair? Or are they sometimes unfair? Sometimes we might need a reminder of God's love during time of trouble. And there are plenty of texts that reassure us that he loves us and is committed to our well-being and he's sovereignly causing all things to work together for our ultimate good. And there are days that 
we might feel overwhelmed by our troubles and we might need a reminder of God's faithfulness that we sang about this morning, that he promises new mercies every morning. He promises that there will be grace sufficient for each day's need so we don't have to stop and think, oh, how am I going to live with this for X amount of time? It's You don't have grace for, to live for the rest of your life like this. You have grace for today to live through this thing in your life and it'll be sufficient. And sometimes like Job, we might need a reminder of God's justice or his righteousness, which is the main issue in our passage for this morning. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Job chapter 32 as we continue our study in this Old Testament book. You may remember that chapters 4 through 31, which is two-thirds of the whole book, are a series of speeches between Job and his three friends. The three friends are convinced that Job is suffering because God is punishing him for his sin. Job insists he is innocent and that he has done nothing to deserve the terrible suffering he's experiencing. And after 28 chapters of going back and forth around that, there is still a stalemate. The question of why Job is suffering has not been resolved yet because neither side has convinced the other. And then we are introduced to Elihu, who speaks for six chapters in a row without interruption or dispute from either Job or his friends. At the end of the book, God says that the three friends have not spoken what is right about me, but he doesn't say that about Elihu. And Elihu's speeches seem to be a preview or a prelude to what God himself will say in chapters 38 through 41. This morning we will look at Elihu's contribution to our understanding of God's justice, and then Lord willing, after Easter, we will see what he says about some of the ways God uses suffering for our Good. So let's start with the first five verses of chapter 32. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakol, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because... He justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three friends, his anger burned. So Elihu has been listening to this whole discussion between Job and his three friends and he says the three friends have failed to give an adequate answer to the question of why Job is suffering. It was too simplistic to say he's suffering because of his sin. And then he calls out Job because he justified himself before God. Or he justified himself rather than God or more than God. Remember, justify means to secure a verdict of being in the right. So Job is not only righteous in his own eyes, but he also says, I am in the right and God is not in the right. 
I am innocent and God is wrong to treat me this way or else he needs to explain to me why what he's doing is right. So here's some examples of that kind of thinking that Elihu brings up from Job's words, verse 8 through 11 of chapter 33. Elihu is speaking, he's going to quote Job. Surely you have spoken in my hearing and I've heard the sound of your words. And then he quotes Job. I am pure without transgression. I am innocent and there is no guilt in me. Behold, he, God, invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. So Job accuses God of inventing pretexts against him. Job claims God has to make up imaginary charges against him since there are no legitimate reasons for treating him when he's innocent as if he is an enemy. It would be like your boss making up excuses to get you fired. There are no valid reasons to terminate you. You're doing a good job at work. But he just doesn't like you and he wants to get rid of you. And you would say, that's unfair. He can't do that. That would be unjust if there are no legitimate grounds to be fired. And that's what Job says God is doing. He's coming after me and he's giving me all this suffering. And I don't deserve it. He's treating me unfairly. Chapter 34, verse 5 and 6. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. Should I lie concerning my rights? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. So again, he says, God doesn't have a good reason to treat me this way. I'm innocent, but he's punishing me. He has taken away what is rightfully mine. Chapter 35, verse 1 and 2. Then Elihu continued and said, Do you think this is according to justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? So again, Job again claims he's more righteous than God himself. And then if you remember the strong statement Job made to his friends back in chapter 19, verse 6, know then that God has wronged me. And Job is not the only one who's ever questioned whether God's dealings were just. When God's professing people were in exile, they said in Isaiah 40, 27, the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. In other words, this just isn't right. God isn't paying attention. We deserve to be treated better than this. God is not doing what he should be doing for us as his people. Or several years ago, there was a sister in our church family who was going through some really tough trials. And her mother was visiting one Sunday and she took me aside and told me, she's so sweet. What did she do to deserve this? Now, do you hear the underlying assumption in that question? Sweet people deserve to be spared from trials. 
my daughter is a sweet person. And therefore, God isn't treating her according to what is due her as a sweet person. It's unjust to treat her as if she's an unsweet person. It's a question about God's justice. Not talking about God's love, not talking about God's sovereignty, not talking about God's wisdom. It's about, is he doing the right thing? Is God righteous when he treats a sweet person with trials? Or is that wrong? Or maybe you yourself have thought, God is not doing what he should be doing in my challenging situation. He should be doing more. He's not doing enough to intervene in this mess. He's not treating me right. So how should we think when God or others or ourselves say God is not doing what is right? Let's see how Elihu responds to Job and then some applications in light of what he says. So go to Job 34, verse 10. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him authority over the earth and who has laid on him the whole world? Elihu just reminds us God is always just. He does not and cannot do wrong to anyone. He is always righteous in all of his dealings. And a few other verses remind us of that unchangeable truth. Go to Job 37. Job 37, verse 23. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is exalted in power and he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Or Genesis 18, 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Or Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So that's what the Bible teaches about God's righteousness or his justice. He always does what's right. He never does what's wrong. He never is unfair. He always gives what is rightfully due. So here are some applications. Therefore, first, it is never right to accuse or condemn God of injustice or of doing something wrong. Job 36, verse 22 and 23. Job 36, 22 and 23. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed him his way? And who has said, you have done wrong? And God himself, 
we'll speak to Job. We'll look at that in April sometime. But Job 40, just a preview. Job 40, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. So reprove means he's correcting God. He's scolding God. He's saying, you're not doing the right thing. Verse 8, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And that's exactly what Job is doing. He's more righteous than God, he says. And God's saying, really? You're going to condemn me so that you're the one seen as the one in the right and I'm the one in the wrong? So we never have a valid reason to criticize God's dealings or to say he is unfair. And just one example of that, in Romans 9, Paul knows some people will question God's sovereign dealings with sinful rebels like us. And in Romans 9, he knows that's the questions that's going to come up. And he says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, or God forbid, or by no means. And it's unthinkable that the righteous God would do anything not perfectly righteous. It is impossible he would ever wrong anyone. God always does what is absolutely right. And related to that would be God never owes anyone an apology. There's a church here in Sioux City that had a sign out in the front of their building one spring, and the message said, May is God's apology for winter. Hmm. Apology, if you look it up, means an expression of regret for a mistake or wrong with implied admission of guilt or fault. So did God wrong us by creating winter? Did he make a mistake when he designed the changing seasons? And I hope you say, of course not. Well, then he doesn't owe us an apology for winter. I don't like winter, but I have no right to tell God, you owe me an apology and I'll accept it in May. Because I'll feel good about the weather then. But until then, you're wrong to treat me with cold weather. Well, that's a sort of a silly one, but here's a much more serious example. So you may remember there was a tsunami in the Pacific years ago, killed a quarter of a million people. An unbelievable amount of people died in this storm. And there were lots of reactions in the media to that, including an article that appeared in Progressive titled, God Owes Us an Apology. The Christian-style, quote-unquote, God of love should be particularly vulnerable to post-tsunami doubts. If we are responsible for our actions, as most religions insist, then God should be too. And I would propose post-tsunami 
an immediate withdrawal of prayer and all other forms of flattery directed at a supposedly moral deity, at least until an apology is issued. I don't think I'd want to be in the same building when she wrote that, because I'm, I'm thinking lightning <laughs> is going to strike for that kind of blasphemy. But it's a questioning of, is God just? Is he righteous? Does he do wrong to people? In Daniel 4.35 says he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can stay his hand or say to him what have you done what have you done God what have you done in Asia with a quarter million casualties what are you doing that's not right you shouldn't do that and here's the Bible saying God is absolutely righteous all the time in all his dealings with all people in all circumstances and we need to choose what we're going to believe about God at that point. A second application of this truth that God is always righteous and just in all his dealings is that it is never appropriate to expect or demand an explanation from him. He does not owe us an explanation for why what he did was right. So a few weeks back, I talked about a Baptist pastor in Texas, this is a Baptist pastor in Kentucky. He wrote a book that has sold one million copies. So a lot of people have read this book. I've read it. And it it's a sad story. It's a heartbreaking book about losing their 10-year-old daughter to leukemia and how they tried to process that tragic event in light of their faith. And of course we want to be gracious. And we want to weep with those who weep. And we, we just can't even imagine, we want to acknowledge it. That kind of loss would be incredibly hard to bear. I just can't imagine that kind of pain. So we want to give lots of slack. But what are we to think when he says that what really helped him was a letter he got from a friend who said, quote, I fall back on the idea that God has a lot to give an account for. And then this is what the author says when he got that letter. Now, to be honest, no one had ever said anything like that to me before. And at first it was a little shocking. But the more I thought about it, the truer it became to my faith. God wants us to become mature sons and daughters, which means that he holds us responsible for our actions, and he expects us to hold him responsible for his. I am really honoring God when I come clean and say, you owe me an explanation. So again, you ache with him, you grieve with him, you say, I can't, I can't comprehend what you have gone through but be careful what you say about God and careful about what you say to God and what you write in a book that a million people plus are going to read and think that's okay to say, God, you owe me an explanation. Because God says, I don't. So here's some verses, Job 33, 12 and 13. 
is Elihu rebuking Job. He says, behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. Do you see the twist there? Job's been saying, God's not right, I'm right. And Elihu, as God's spokesman, is saying, no, you're not right. Why? Oh, for why? Why is it that you're not right in this? For God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? So here's Matthew Henry on that. There is enough in this one plain, unquestionable truth that God is greater than man forever to put to silence all our complaints of his providence and our exceptions against his dealings with us. He is not only more wise and powerful than we are, but more holy, more just, and good. In these, God is greater than man, and therefore it is absurd and unreasonable to find fault with him, for he is certainly in the right. God is not accountable to us. It is an unreasonable thing for us, weak, foolish, sinful creatures, to strive with a God of infinite wisdom, power, and goodness. Woe to the clay that strives with the potter, for he gives no account of any of his matters. He is under no obligation to show us a reason for what he does, neither to tell us what he designs to do, nor tell us why he deals thus with us. He is not bound either to justify his own proceedings or satisfy our demands and inquiries. His judgments will certainly justify themselves. So if that sounds strong, I just think it's, it's worth saying. Remember, we had this category we saw of, of words for the wind. That people in pain that are really hurting are going to say some things that they might not say otherwise. So we want to have that category. And, it's, and Elihu heard that too. And Elihu isn't calling Job out for wishing he died or wishing he'd never been born or just a lot of just plain complaining that he's doing. But when Job crossed a line and called God into question and said, God has wronged me and God isn't right and I'm right and God isn't, you crossed a line that I can't just say, oh, that's, I just need to let that go because you're hurting, Job. It's like, you just dishonored God. I can't. Just sit here and let that happen. So I think that's, that's how I try to put this together. It's like, we don't want to be just, you can't say that about God went to hurting people, but we also want to honor God and say, there, there's truth about God and there's things that aren't true about God. And when people start talking about things that aren't true about God, we can't just go, oh, okay. It's okay to demand an explanation. It's okay to demand an apology. It's okay to criticize God or accuse him of wronging you? No, it's not. And so gently, gently, nicely, graciously, all the right adverbs <laughs> that need to be there, put that in and care about what God says about himself enough that you're not okay with borderline, if not across the line, blasphemy. Does that make sense?
And that was all just like winging off the cuff, not in there. I just, I mean, I look at your faces and you're like, wow, that was strong. And they're like, it is strong. I, 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 it, but it's the Bible. I mean, this is, I'm not making this up. This is right here. And he says, God does not give an account of all his doings. That's, that's God says that. So that means I don't have the right to demand that he gives an account to me for what he does or why he does it. Huh. Okay. So as we close, do you remember that verse that Job was righteous in his own eyes? That's actually a very common attitude. And Jesus told a parable to show how dangerous that is. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 18. Luke 18. And we'll start with verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Okay, so it's righteous in their own eyes. And viewed others in contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So here's a very religious man who is righteous in his own eyes because he does some good things and he doesn't do some bad things and he's trusting that that makes him good enough to be accepted by God. And then verse 13 says, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Tax collectors were despised for being dishonest crooks and selling out to the Romans. Most people would assume that such a big sinner like him would have little or no chance of being accepted by God. But listen to the surprise ending of the story, verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. Justified means declared right in God's sight, acquitted and accepted by God. This man, the sinner who cried out for mercy, he went home justified. But the religious man who was trusting in his own righteousness and the good stuff he did and the bad stuff he didn't do, he did not go home right with God. So what about you? Will you go home justified today? If God is showing you you need a righteousness you don't have, acknowledge, first of all, I'm not good enough to be right in God's sight. Romans 3 there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. There is none who does good. There is not even one. 
And second, acknowledge I can't make myself good enough or do enough good things to earn God's approval. So Titus 3, 5 says he saved us not according to works of righteousness or deeds of righteousness we have done. It's not like what we offer to God. It's what God has given to us, his mercy. So I trust Christ alone to be forgiven of my sins and to be counted righteous before God. Philippians 3, 9 Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so that's our only hope, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. His death on the cross takes away our unrighteousness. His perfect life is credited to our account as now our righteousness, that we are accepted and welcomed by God. And for those who are trusting in Christ this morning, just a reminder that it really matters that we believe what's true about God, including and especially during times of trial. Our thoughts and our words about God will either honor him or dishonor him. If we criticize or find fault with him, we dishonor him. If we trust him, even when we don't understand what's going on, that honors him. And the better we know him, the more we will trust him. This is in Psalm 9, verse 9 and 10. Psalm 9, verse 9 says, The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For to you, O Lord, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So to know his name doesn't mean you, you know that he's called God. To know God's name means to know his revealed character to know what he has said about himself in his word, to know and believe that he is always sovereign, always loving, always wise, always merciful, always just, always kind, always all-powerful, always compassionate, and all his other attributes all the time, forever. God is unchangeable. He does not change. He says that in Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. That's our hope. I need a God who doesn't change. And he's all of those things all the time. So, yes, we kind of focused on his justice today because that's what the passage focused on. But supply everything else you know about God from his word about what he's like, that he is loving. So, he is up to something good in your life when you're in a trial, not something bad. And he's always wise, so he's not making mistakes. You don't have to wonder if he knows what he's doing. He's always all-powerful. He can do things that you can't even imagine he can do. I mean, just, just have a complete, well-rounded, biblical view of God and not just a snippet here and a snippet there and then go off and say something dishonoring, if not blasphemous, because it doesn't fit what you think God should do. So the more we embrace the truth about God, the more we will trust 
that he does all things well, even when we are suffering. And so I want to close with a quote from Matthew Henry. The better God is known, the more he is trusted. Those who know him to be a God of infinite wisdom will trust him further than they can see him. Those who know him to be a God of almighty power will trust him when creature confidences fail and they have nothing else to trust to. Those who know him to be a God of infinite grace will trust him though he slay them. Those who know him to be a God of inviolable truth and faithfulness will rejoice in his word of promise and rest upon that even though the performance may be delayed and intermediate providences seem to contradict it. And those who know him to be an everlasting father will trust him with their souls at all times, even to the end. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us as a father who loves us perfectly. You're a father who is perfectly wise. You're a father who does all things well for his children. And so we pray that you'd increase our faith, strengthen our faith, to hang on to what we know about you that in the time of trouble we would put our trust in you. I pray again for anyone who's never put their trust in Christ that even today they would turn away from all other sources of confidence, self-righteousness or religion or anything else and flee to Christ for refuge. It's in his name we pray. Amen.